When you Google Passaquan or Eddie Owen Martin, also known as St. Ohm, the first thing you'll likely see is an image of an older, bearded white man in a self-fashioned headdress. It's not quite an American Indian Plains headdress, but it does have feathers. And it's not quite an Egyptian headdress either, but it does have beads. Now, I don't normally go in for this sort of thing, what we might term now as Coachella fashion, but that's the other thing. This man's headdress is also not really fashionable either, and it doesn't appear that he's trying to play Indian a la Iron Eyes Cody. Rather, St. Ohm is doing something else, something that's difficult to pin down. And that brings us to our episode today. So a few weeks ago, I, along with our fabulous co-producer, Kelly Vines, visited Passaquan, the home and art installation of the late visionary artist, Eddie Owen Martin, to learn about the site, which is under renovation in preparation for its reopening on October 22nd. We talked with the site's incredibly dedicated and thoughtful director, Michael McFalls, who himself is an awarded sculptor as well as a professor at Columbus State University. From the beginning though, St. Ohm and Passaquan seemed an enigma, but Kelly and I felt assured that after we visited and talked to Michael, we'd have a better grasp on the artist, his intentions, and his legacy. But maybe the best way to describe how that went is to give you a listen in to our conversation on the way home in the car. This is me and Kelly. Is there anything that I'm gonna be able to say in the intro that can truly capture for our audience what we just saw? I'm going to take your silence as the sound of no. Yeah, no, I don't know if there is. So, yeah, there's not much I can really say to introduce you to Passaquan. It's complicated, beautiful, inspiring, exhausting, challenging, and necessary. St. Ohm attempted to build a better future with the tools he had. And that's a noble goal. Passaquan, resist easy classification. And that's the spirit of today's episode. Now, what should our listeners know about Passaquan and St. Ohm? It's a seven acre site. It's 900 feet of painted masonry walls that are painted with uh, decorations and mandalas and um, symbols from many ancient cultures. Um, And it was created by St. Ohm, who went by the name Eddie Owen Martin. Eddie Owen Martin was born on the 4th of July in 1908 at the stroke of midnight in Glen Alta, Georgia. And um, he was one of five kids. And a, a, and a family of sharecroppers. Lived in New York 
in the Roaring Twenties as a street hustler. Um, lived there for until '57 um, and came back after his mother died. Inherited the land and inherited the house, and he began creating Pasquan and worked on it for 30 years until he died in 1986. So, and we talked a little bit earlier um, before this interview, the sort of apocrypha around Saint Ohm's story. Yeah, that he was really a man of also self-invention. Yeah. Is there more that you could tell us about that, his sort of creation, not only of this site, but his creation of himself as St. Ohm? Well, <clears throat> the story goes that um, Eddie Martin, in around 1935, grew very ill, uh, had a fever. Um, he thought he was going to die. Um, the fever overcame him, and he had a vision, and a Pasakoyan came to him. Um, Pasakoyans are from the future, um, and the Pasakoyan that he met, the first one, was probably eight feet tall, if I remember correctly, in the Tom Patterson book, and had, and I remember this clearly, he describes the arms the size of watermelon, so you can kind of get the sense of this being, and I think it, the being was overwhelming and maybe even scary uh, to him. And, um, and this being told uh, Eddie Martin that he needed to change his ways um, um, or um, this was the end of the road for him. So after that, um, soon after that, he had a second vision and he met another Pasacoyan who told him he would be the first Pasacoyan and he would start this place called Pasacoan. And he changed his name after that to St. Ohm. Um, so it's E-O-M for Eddie Owen Martin. So... That's kind of the beginning of that fiction. But even then, I mean, in the, in the book by Tom Patterson, he talks about, you know, kind of creating himself as a, you know, as a street hustler and learning how to read people. And, you know, um, he, he lived a fictional life as, you know, from the time he hitchhiked to New York to the time he died. You yourself are a sculptor mm -hmm. and an artist. Where do you see Pasaquan fitting into the larger scope of Georgian art or Southern visionary art? Oh, I, I think it, I mean, maybe I'm biased at this point. I mean, I've become very attached to the place over the last year and a half since I've been involved. But um, I think it might be one of the most important visionary art sites in the U.S. And definitely probably one of the most complete. And we have probably the, we have a wonderful archive that kind of gives the his history. I mean, the great thing about Eddie Martin and the Pasquan Preservation Society is they kept everything. So we have all his receipts. We have 2,000 drawings. We have paintings. We have, we have his clothes that he made. We have all those things. So as far as kind of um, being able to catalog and, and develop um, or, or be, be an important site in the history of visionary or Southern visionary art history, um, this place is important. Um, and I think it's a, at least if you want to say in the realm of Georgia, it's definitely as important as Howard Finstner's place, you know. So, I mean, that's probably where I'd see it, see it. Yeah. I mean, when you see it, I think you kind of realize that. And he's different from Finstner in many ways. I mean, so Finstner's garden is, I mean, I get this question a lot. So why was, why do people know about Howard Finstner and how come they don't know about Eddie Martin and... I mean, I, at, the, at this point, it would be my, I'm speculating, but, you know, one reason I think is, look, the location of where uh, Paradise Garden is, is 
much easier to get to. It's between Atlanta and Chattanooga. It's kind of a easy drive off of I-75. Takes a while to get here. You, it's off the beaten path um, to get to, you know, Buena Vista. And this is not even in Buena Vista. It's still six miles outside of Buena Vista. But um, the other thing I think that's, uh, you know, another reason is I think it's the subject matter. I think I even think it's, you know, who Eddie Martin was. I mean, um, you know, it's a lot easier for Southern or even just culturally at the time when Howard Finstner became quite popular in the 80s and early 80s, you know, it's easy to accept Coca-Cola and Jesus. I mean, those things are very American. Um, Passacoyans from the future that develop a utopian, you know, society that's pluralistic and accepting of all. And this was kind of scary stuff. something more kind of easier to digest with the the coca-cola-esque style folk art or something that seems to traffic in familiar consumer symbols yes and that is not what this is no there is nothing that i think would strike anyone as familiar or mainstream consumer in this space no, I mean, it's familiar in the sense that it might have symbols from ancient cultures and you might recognize those, but they're all out of context anyway. So there's something, re- and, and they're really, most of the time, next to one another, you might have a Christian cross right next to, you know, some kind of Mayan symbol, and these things seem to <laughs> coexist in the same space. And that's where I, what I mean by that pluralistic kind of vision of his. Um, I mean, Eddie talks about this place being, uh, and that, and I think that's important for me when I talk to people when they come out here, is there is a myth that this place might have been haunted at one point. There's a myth that, you know, he was a witch doctor, that he was a wizard, and all these things. But, you know, and I think part of that myth was developed by the town even after his death. Um, but really, he, he thought this, I mean, Pascon was a... a, um, a utopian paradise for him where everybody was accepted like this was the place like every creed every race it didn't matter if you were homosexual or heterosexual this was a place for everybody um and the and it was going to be the beginning this is where the future was going to start right here in Buena Vista Georgia There are stories of him going into Buena Vista to buy his supplies, and I'll tell you this great myth. He drove a, he drove a station wagon, and there are stories that people tell me he had all these cats, and the cats would be in the car, and he'd get out of the station wagon in, in the town square right in front of the um, hardware store there. All the cats would jump out of the car, run around town. He'd go into the, t- into the hardware store. People said he'd jingle and stuff buy his supplies and they'd do this, this is a myth now, he'd, he'd make this call in front of the station wagon and all the cats would jump into the car and he'd drive away. And I, I swear I've heard this story from locals, three different different locals and, and different versions of this story. 
you know and so yeah i can imagine that um you know he was really you know they they talk about the eccentric people in towns in the south he was a he was a genius eccentric from from the south he was one of a kind to say the least and i'm beginning to learn that i mean i fell in love with the art but then now the character of Eddie Martin is becoming even as interesting or maybe even more interesting for me. And that's interesting, I think, what you said, the character Eddie Martin. Yeah. That it's really amazing how... It might even be the myth, right? Yeah, is it a character? Here's a person. He is real. He grew up, I think earlier um, you had mentioned, um, child of sharecroppers. He moves to New York. He moves home. But he has, it seems, a conscious vision of creating his persona. He is his own art piece. That character is his own art piece in addition to this house and living space that he Mm -hmm. starts to put together. Yeah. And that is a really, it strikes me as a really special thing. Well, he cultivated this character and some of it I think he intentionally did so, partly to protect himself. You know, he's out here. He wants to kind of stay to himself. He wants people to leave him alone, let him build this thing. So he does kind of, I'm sure he's developing this persona and lets these myths, in fact, probably um, encourages these myths to, to happen, and then, you know, from the townspeople. the I think to today in 2016 there might be the cynical reading of him that he is just sort of you is engaged in some sort of cultural appropriation that is just hodgepodging things that he doesn't entirely understand and is just using them because they appeal to him on an aesthetic level but that doesn't quite seem here when I'm looking at everything it doesn't quite seem to be what he's doing um he has a basic knowledge of these things. He had, he had read a little bit, but he, I mean, he's an armchair philosopher. I mean, he has an eighth grade education, not that that means, you know, but he's not um, well versed in anything, but he seems to be interested in all of it. Because fidelity to Mayan spirituality or Mayan religions or fidelity to Buddhism and the Asian influences you see here or fidelity to West African religions, that's not his point. It doesn't no. seem. His point is not, and it doesn't even seem to be his point is to appropriate something. His point seems to be a sincere belief that if we're going to move forward in the future in a good way, we have to go back and examine knowledges that Western society has told has us are wrong. About. Yeah. Or we've just, we've lost it. We don't understand it anymore. It's hard. I, mean, I guess I, I'm having a bit of a, I'm struggling with this, because to describe to the listener that on the one hand you could look at this and say it is appropriative, but then when you get here and you look at everything, you say, no, there really is something else going on here that's more complex than him just piecemealing cultures that he liked. It does seem that he has, like you said, uh, he is working towards a philosophy underneath this that to him is from the future yeah and i mean i think you and you were talking about the cynical view i think the cynical view i often hear is oh well he's a he's a child of his of the 60s or something like that he was a hippie and 
because there are those references. But I think this is far more complex than what was going on at Woodstock or, you know. <laughs> and there's something, I, I mean, there, there's also, I mean, the, some of these characters are, you know, they're warriors. They're, they're, they're somewhat threatening at the same time. I mean, it's not, you know, I this don't know. This is not all kumbaya. No, not at all. That's the difference, I think. That's what, it is. I think it's easy to dismiss it that way. And I find it, I, I think that's, when people say that, I think they're not really looking. Just go, oh, he, and, and then there's a lot of people who, He'll say he's just a con man, right? What, you know, because he was a fortune teller, and you know, and he, you know, he had developed this myth around himself. And but that's, I think, I, I think it's amazing that somebody could could live some kind of con for thirty years of their life and dedicate it. I mean, I, I'm an artist. I can't imagine making a one piece of art like this, Pasaquan, for thirty years of my life. Just when I start to think about that and the time he spent. It's it's amazing. If this know. was a con, it would be the most dedicated con anyone has yeah. ever run. Yeah. To what end? I mean, fortune telling, to a certain extent, is probably lucrative. But being a fortune teller six miles outside of Buena Vista, Georgia, if it was a con, he's far too deep in. Yeah, he conned himself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a far more serious venture than yeah. that. It, and it, it here it expresses what it seems to me. A sincere belief in art for oneself and art that's going to communicate to someone else in the future. Yeah, and I, I mean, if you talk to Fred Fussell, who is a local folklorist and and um, was the curator of the Columbus Museum at the time, he knew Eddie Martin, and he, I mean, even I would say even Fred will talk about Eddie as you know, at times having his own doubts about it. You know, one day you'd come out and talk to Eddie and Eddie would talk about this being the future, but then at one moment he'd have this doubt. But you could, he he'd said you could tell that Eddie was genuinely, at the end of his life, really contemplating what, is go, what, what, what did I do this for and, and how, how important is it? And, but until the end he kept saying, hey, this is, you know, I think he really thought... Maybe he's right. Who knows that the civilization is going to start here again, the new civilization, or you know, this is the beginning of the future at Pasaquan. There is this myth that people think, well, Eddie did—he—he he wasn't a cop out. He didn't sell art. And, he, he, he went to all the local art things like in Americas and Columbus and sold trinkets and sold art pieces. And then there was a gallery, and I can't remember, it's, it's debunked now, but I, we have in the archives receipts of this and letters between uh, Eddie Martin and, and this gallerist in Buckhead that would sell his sculpture. So, and there are pieces in major museums now of Eddie Martin's. The High Museum has... A couple, or I have one really beautiful piece of his. I, I, but it, I don't want to say, I think it's misconception that I think people want to put him in this savant category in the sense that he was isolated in a bubble and didn't want to come out and was this hermit. And he went out into the world and tried to sell his work. He just, I don't think, was as good at it. On the one hand, it's probably interesting to realize that he isn't purely engaging in a consumer aspect to his art, but 
it would be a misreading to essentialize him as some sort of, as you said, pure savant artist living in rural isolation, doing this for just the deeper spiritual significance. Yeah. He also wanted to be known and recognized oh, as an artist. To. He wanted to be known. I mean, he still... And there were times he, he'd say things like, I guess this again, this is something Fred has told me. Oh, they'll 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 sing my praises and they'll they'll talk about me when I'm dead and then the next day he'd be like, Oh, you know, I don't know what's gonna happen to this place when I'm gone and I don't want people to think that Eddie Martin was alone and no and knew him nothing and had no idea what the art world was. He was pretty sophisticated and knew what was going on. He knew where how his work could be consumed, where he fit in, you know. So, but he definitely wasn't driven to make work that reflected that consumer culture like Howard Finster's work does. I mean, to talk about New York, I mean, New York, I think, has a huge impact on this place. Um, I don't think it gets to this point and understanding of the visual language without being in New York. There's no doubt when he's in New York in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, he's looking at art. We have evidence of that. When you're in the archives, there, there's actually gallery guides that he saved and drew on. So he's going to galleries, looking at these artists. The other thing, though, that you see influence his work is <clears throat> he's a drag queen in New York City. So early on, even before he had his first visions, he before he's St. Ohm, he's still making drawings, drawings of the East Village. A lot of the drawings are drawings of home from his memory. So there's drawings of the hardware store um, in Buena Vista and the town square that he did from his head, you know, um, that he drew. So he, he's got, there, there might be a sense of longing there at that time. But then at the same time, he's also drawing a lot of the drag queens. And I think when you look at the Pasaquan idealized figure, because it becomes this idealized figure that you see around you all, all over the place, and especially in his drawings, they are derivative of the drag queen drawings or the people that he was hanging out with. I'm curious if he were here, not that we would necessarily get the real story. He's clearly doing something with, something may appear one way. This is a house. Yeah. It's also an art installation. Yeah. This is a fence. It's also this. This is a well pump, but it can also be this. I mean, he really seems to be pushing the boundaries of things that are both and. Or something yeah. may look one way, yeah. but you get closer or further away, and there's a tr he's playing a trick on your eye, it seems, at every and, turn. And that brings us to the point that you talked about earlier in the sense that... Um, he also does this with space that, you know, you feel like you can get to a certain destination. And he, he talks about this clearly that, but when you try to get there, there's always a wall in the way. There's always something impeding your direction. So you have to make a choice to either go left or go right in this space. And, and he, he very much understood that. And you can see it, especially inside the house at some points, but um, even outside the way you can see that destination to that pagoda but, it, I mean, you have to walk at least, you know, twice the distance if, than going straight to it because he puts these barriers and um, walls and, and in your way uh, and, don't, and doesn't allow you to kind of get there directly. And I like that. I mean, his life story is that way. <laughs> he never, he doesn't go straight to the place that he thought he would. And 
he seems to weave around a bit and he's got this kind of you know bohemian lifestyle and he he was a traveler and and then he finds his way back home to Passaquan in some way you know best materials or the best practices but he's one using what he can yeah and he's in some cases i think you had mentioned the orange pigment in the kitchen yeah he's not using binders in the pigment because he wants this pure pigment and maybe that's not technically the right way you would do something but he he has an attention and he's getting there however he can yeah, and I think that's common for, you know, outsider artists and visionary artists is they're, they they have this need to express something in a visual way and thus they will use whatever means to get there. Um, so, you know, so John Salas from Parma, he's the, the conservative from Parma, was talking to me because most of the paint was probably house paint and latex paint that he was buying at the hardware store. Um, and commonly that paint was paint that was mismixed or something and he would just pick it up but then there were times it seems that it was very intentional and it had to be a certain way and john pointed out to me that they, that they found there were paints with no binders in it that he was using so as they're cleaning the place they're realizing some of the paint or some of the pigment in the interior of the house had no binder and it was because and they you know and he was saying it was probably because he was trying to look for a certain intensity and the binder will dull the color um so yeah, so these were dispersion pigments is what they call them. Um, it's before you add anything else to the paint. It's the purest liquid pigment you can get. So what are our goals? Well, the restoration goals, um, I mean, really, I'm speaking for Kohler and the preservation team. So we have we had three groups out here, really four. So we had um, Tim Gregory it was our contractor. He's really done with all the kind of structural work. So we had to hire a, a general contractor, and he was fantastic. He works in Columbus, um, Columbus, Ohio, Columbus, Georgia, does a lot of the um, sites in um, the historic downtown and has worked a lot on that. So his crew out here, again, amazing job because this was, a not, this was quite a feat. There was a lot of termite damage. There were a lot of floors that were missing that were rotting completely to the ground. And you're not seeing it. I mean, it was in quite a lot. I mean, I bet you in a few more years, Pasquale would have been gone. It was that close to just being in complete disrepair you have a group called parma inc parma inc is out of chicago they're doing all the um, painting restoration you met a few of them today they're still painting right now um and and they're from they're just an amazing group and there have been four or five people out of there john solace has probably been the one person who's been working on this the most he's kind of headed it up for uh, parma inc you also have um, International Artifacts, and they're out of Houston, Texas, um, and they are doing all the um, concrete conservation work. So object restoration, was, was that's their job. So they're fixing, and that was when they, I mean, there were walls that were fall, that had fallen over, so they reset those walls, and 
And so, but their goal is to try to preserve this place um, to um, to the state to the to the state it was when he created it. Um, the problem was is this was a thirty year creation, and and this is what they ran into as as a con- conservators and, and and as a restoration crew, I guess, is that um, as you're conserving a place like this, and it took him thirty years, he. He was constantly making it and remaking it and constantly painting it. And to be honest, the, the discussion we've had is Pasquan probably never even looked like this for Eddie Martin. My first impression when I, when I came here is I actually rode my bike here. And I came with the group, and it was they used to open it up, the PPS, which is the Pasquan Preservation Society, and, and we should thank them. Like, this place doesn't exist without PPS, right? So, and and they preserved it until Kohler took it over, and then Kohler gifted it to CSU. But without them, even though it was in disrepair, it would have really gone to waste. Well, at that time, the PPS was open in the place once a month. And it would just be open. And we rode our bikes here. And some, I think it was, I can't remember. I think his name was Pat McHenry told me about the place the first time. And we rode out here. And I pulled up my bike. And you can't see it because they stripped the paint off of it. But on that Kiva out there, there's two big eyes. And they're watching you. And I remember coming over. And, it, and that feeling of being watched hit me immediately. And and they're really powerful. The, the, they've stripped it off because they're going to paint it back on, and you, they're not. They haven't finished that part. And that was my first impressions. And I remember thinking, this place is special and, and important. there's a story that Fred tells the best. So you guys went into the kitchen and I said, let me remind me to tell you the story about these Pasacoyans in the kitchen. If you look at them, they all have these suits on and they all have dots on them. And those dots on the suit are all touching pressure points on the body, according to Eddie Martin. And he called them power suits or levitation suits. I've heard them called both. I think Eddie called them power suits, but... Apparently they made you levitate. And this was the way he solved the transportation problem in the future. That, um, you know, we don't have, there's no cars in Pasaquan. You levitate everywhere, right? So he made one. He made a levitation suit because he made all his clothes and stuff too. So Eddie Martin makes the levitation suit. And Fred says, well, did you put it on? Eddie, with his long paws, says yes. And then, of course, Fred says, well, did you float? And Eddie said he felt lighter.
Thanks everyone for sharing your time with us this week. We have to thank Michael McFalls and the entire team at Passaquan. Passaquan opens to the public on October 22nd. That is October 22nd. There will be a number of free events for people of all ages to enjoy. It's a celebration of art and of the future, and we hope to see you there. In the meantime, have you taken aerial shots? Yes. Of the property? Does yeah, anything some... come forward aerially? Aerially? Yeah. Yes, from the sky. Yes. 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 <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a better way of saying that. Um, yes. Um, in fact, there's a... Um, it's Bill Edwards, and uh, i got to give him credit because they've done beautiful drone footage out here. And, and you can go on YouTube and see this. Bill Edwards and Jim Gates, or James Gates, they did these... Um, drone footage of the of the site and um you can see the patterning of the of the rooftops from up there in a way that you can't imagine and i'll leave it to your listeners to decide what they see because it is pretty interesting when you go and see it it's funny actually i cannot wait <laughs> i think it's you better have, than, we will put I, that I, link I, on our website yes i, I think yes okay. i think you should i'll let them decide what it is because you know i don't want to prescribe anything but Many people have assumptions of what it might be. You can find the link to the Passaquan aerial footage on our website, aboutsouthpodcast.com, and on our social media accounts. About South is brought to you each week from the beautiful and historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines is our most amazing co-producer. Music is by Brian Horton, and you can buy his music at brianhorton.com. Please subscribe to About South on your preferred podcast platform. We're taking next week off, but we'll see you on August 5th when we talk to Monica Miller about Southern ugliness. It's going to be a great conversation. In the meantime, tell your friends about About South and give us a shout out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until then, take care and feel lighter. Lighter.